Hello, my finest friends. Welcome to another book club this week with a very beautifully written and uh, fantastic biography of the poet John Donne. Oh, yeah, I'm classy. I mean, it's not all bums and stuff. And there's some of that in this as well. Uh, it's Super Infinite by Catherine Rundle. Uh, I had a lovely chat with her and uh, she's a very passionate advocate of John Donne. Um, and uh, if you're enjoying these, please do tell your friends. If there's any books you think I should have a look at, you can email me and I can think about it. But I'm basically just choosing the books that I'm reading that are good fun. It's helping me read more books, which is good, or listen to them in most cases. I hope it will encourage you to listen to or read more books. If you like the sound of it, go and buy Catherine's book. But let's sit back, relax and enjoy Rahala Shabaka with Catherine Rundle. Hello, welcome to another book club. My guest this week is Catherine Rundle, who has written a fantastic book about John Donne called Super Infinite. Uh, hello, Catherine, how are you? Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm very excited. I love this book. I love John Donne, um, and I think this is a fantastic book about him. Now, I didn't know very much about you before this. Uh, you have written some books before. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've written before? So I have a sort of um, double life. In one side of my work is I write unlikely adventure stories for the nine to twelves. Um, <laughs> one of them is called Rooftoppers, one of them is called The Explorer and I. the other part of my life is I hold a, a fellowship at All Souls College in Oxford where I teach Shakespeare and work on Renaissance literature and there's not that much clash between them so they sort of live in different parts of my head. Okay, good. And yeah, and they're award-winning uh, children's books you've, that you've written. So uh, you've been shortlisted for the Carnegie Medal, which sounds very impressive. <laughs> uh, and uh, you go roof, is the rooftop is about rooftop climbing? Is this something you do? You go across the rooftops of Oxford, presumably? Exactly that. So it's a, um, when I was younger, I used to climb rocks. And then when I came to England, there were no rocks to climb. So I started climbing old buildings like Battersea Power Station and um, Centre Point. And then a lot of the Oxford rooftops are quite easy to um, clamber along. And so I started writing about that. And that's where rooftop has come from. OK, is that something we should be encouraging 9 to 12 year olds to, to do? Uh, I, <laughs> I have been told I've been responsible for one broken ankle and one broken wrist, but it's been out like a decade. So I think that's an OK hit rate, really. <laughs> Very good. And you begin, according to Wikipedia, you begin each day with a cartwheel. Is that still the case? Or is that, is that... <laughs> no, I was about 21 when that was written. I'm 34. I, I begin each day with like, a lot of coffee. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. So why, uh, what was, what what drew you, I mean, obviously you studied John Donne, I think you did a great degree, you, was your postgraduate thesis right. in John Donne, but so what was, what was the impetus to writing this book about John Donne? So my sort of pitch on John Donne is that he is the greatest poet of desire and sex and passion in English, and that he sort of uh, erupted from this previous tradition in which, while of course there were brilliant exceptions, the majority of poets were writing very much a kind of, my lady is a perfect dove kind of poetry. Um, Philip Sidney famously compared uh, his lady loves two shoulders unto two twin white doves. And then in another poem, her cheeks are white doves. And you start to feel like, Philip, like other birds are available at this point. Um, and John Donne 
utterly refuse to play that game. That vision of a kind of desexualized, sanitized perfection. He insists that desire is so much stranger and more unwieldy and wilder than that. And so when he talks about desire, you have fleas and a pair of compasses and he compares a woman's tongue to the ancient remora which is a sort of mythical deadly sucking fish <laughs> and he is someone just insisting on the idea that human hearts are so hungry and so vertiginously odd that we need poetry that will salute that rather than poetry that will deny it. Great. Well, that's that's fantastic. I mean, the book is is a, is a fantastic celebration of him, and the language you yourself use is uh, is fantastic as well. And your own metaphors and allusions and love of language comes across. So it's enjoyable both to hear some of his stuff, but also your own your own <laughs> writing is is very evocative and uh, and and terrific. So it's it's a very enjoyable book to read. I I studied. I mean, I don't I don't. I'm not a huge fan of poetry. I studied Dunn and Keats for A level. Uh, and I, Keats was okay, but I really did like John Donne. We obviously only did the sort of the sort of love poetry, really, with, uh, at A levels. That's standard. I remember like being so impressed by him that I would leave hit, hit copies of his poems in. Uh, in I remember one morning after having stayed at my girlfriend at the time's house. <laughs> I don't think she was even quite my girlfriend. I left her a, a, a copy of John Donne open. I think at the Good Morrow. <laughs> So <laughs> embarrassingly, how did uh, she react? Uh, I can't, re can't. She didn't go ever go out with me, and uh, <laughs> properly. So I, not not well. I don't think. I think she. It's quite. It's quite. A, it's. A, it's. I, I like him because I think, as you say in the book, there's a sort of honesty to it that, that that often there isn't in poetry, even when he's being sort of dishonest and sly and trying to uh, seduce. It's. It's. There's an honesty to his dishonesty in, in a sense, and I think he reminds me of comedians in that sense and that I think good comedians sort of are honest even when they're even when they're being dishonest but um it, 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 it I don't know if people if people haven't read any John Donne yet what what what's the best book to start with do you think for someone trying to get into John Donne first of all so I think probably the best um the best couple of poems that you might begin with uh if you wanted the pure love poetry, the poetry we know was written for uh, the woman he married and more, I would say The God Morrow. Um, the Good Morrow is one of those remarkable poems which holds in it both several thousand references to Renaissance culture, which you would have to unpick, but also still works 400 years from now. And then if you wanted something more along his like rakish, um, ribald side, I reckon you would go with uh, to his mistress going to bed, which is probably the maybe the most famous John Donne poem, in which it's a sort of litany of requiring this woman to remove piece after piece of clothing. And it's often reckoned to be uh, a little bit domineering. It's very much a man trying to persuade a woman to get her kit off. But at the end, there is a joke, which is that the only one naked is him. He says, you know, I am naked first. What needs I'll have more covering than a man? <laughs> and so the poem has written into it its own potential failure. And I love that, that Dunn's poetry almost always has this kind of strange slippage. It's never quite what you think it will be. Yeah. And I think the comedy, it does still stand up, which again, for, for me, the, the comedy in Shakespeare doesn't really, until you, I think when you see Shakespeare maybe performed at the Globe with an audience, 
and the actors play it as I think that maybe the Shakespearean actors would have done. You start, sort of start to see where the comedy was in Shakespeare. But the comedy in, in Dunn, it's very unusual for comedy to last and still work 400 years later, I have to say. So the, the comedy in it does, does really work for me. Um, I was interested in the book that you you don't think he really was much of a, a womanizer. In fact, that the, it's, it's sort of bravado and that he wasn't really uh, sleeping around in the in the way that it, that he seemed to be in these younger in these younger days. Exactly that. So the question that everyone always asks is how much sex was he actually having? And the question, of course, slightly boils down to how much sex was it possible to have as a upper middle class young man in the Renaissance in your 20s? And the answer tends to be, well, quite a lot if you were willing to risk um, uh, finding the services of a prostitute. But women of your own class were wildly carefully protected and most of them did go virgins to their wedding nights, um, in part because the penalty if you were caught by having a child with someone outside of wedlock was just so high. You would be often exiled from society. There was one famous case of a young 19 year old woman who had a baby with um, one of the nobles of the Elizabethan court. And her mother wrote her a letter saying, it would have been better that you hadn't been born and also that I hadn't been born so this never could have happened. So the kind of fury and shame around it was very great. Um, so it, I don't think that John Donne was, you know, I'm not arguing that he was a virgin, but I am <laughs> suggesting that most of this poetry would have been written for other boys, for boys in their early 20s, mid 20s, and they were all communicating through this kind of merry-go-round of kind of literary imaginings of themselves as these great rakes. But realistically, the woman in, for instance, The Flea, which is a famous poem in which the speaker imagines a flea first biting him and then biting uh, the woman. Uh, the idea that he was actually writing that for a woman and then giving it to her as an act of sort of uh, erotic flourish is almost certainly untrue. Lovely though that idea would be. Yeah, well, equally, I was surprised, I suppose, to find out that uh, these poems weren't written for publication at all, really. They were just being handed around amongst people and that there was no sort of intention. It, it, it feels like Dunn didn't really have the intention of them reaching down through the ages or even being seen on a wider scale. Exactly that. So Dunn would be absolutely astonished that we were here having this conversation and that I had written a book about his poetry largely. The book is also a little bit about his sermons, but he yeah. died a wildly famous sermonizer. And the idea that there are conferences in America, uh, yearly conferences at the John Donne Society, in which thousands of people come and you can get a little mug with his face on that says, let's get metaphysical. <laughs> the idea that that would happen, he would be uh, both astonished and quite furious, I think. Yeah, I mean, it makes you think if that's the case. And obviously, like, uh, the Great Fire of London came after this and we lost a lot of uh, the the paper and the and the uh, the records of his time anyway. Do you think there were other poets of the, who might have been equally good as Dunn who we've never heard of as, consequently because of this? Absolutely, I think yeah. it's one of those devastating things. So not only would there have been poets um, who would have had their own sort of power and strangeness who are completely lost to us. But also, of course, you know, men fully as great as Shakespeare lived and died silent in the cotton fields. You know, we yeah. we only know what we have managed to say from like the way that time just eats your paperwork. Yes, yeah. But uh, it's uh, but the, you know, is it is it hard? 
to find out about because obviously the book is is, uh, is about his life as well was it was is there's obviously periods of time we don't know much about it feels like the end of his life even though we got the sermons there's some big blank patches there and is there a lot we don't know about him consequently there is and of course yeah. there is so much in John Donne's scholarship where people are sort of duking it out about quite small details um, about the idea of where he was immediately after his school days he sort of disappears and then near the end of his life we don't really know much about his day-to-day -day. so the business of writing about a poet I think is always a mixture of putting down what we do know for sure and then working out what would be probable based on what we know about the period. Um, and of course, the book Super Infinite is, is called that in part because um, he loved to invent words. Mm. He was sort of an insister on the idea that there are bits of the human heart that require us to sort of rest from language, our own individual way of speaking, because there are bits of the human heart that are so absent of cliche that they need a kind of each individual person must forge their own way um, and so he loved this idea of like the super prefix so super eternal super miraculous super dying super infinite so a lot of my reckoning with him is this idea that we don't know huge amounts of his life but we know what kind of man he was we know he was a man so hungry for knowledge and for uh, passion and for thought that infinite wasn't enough you know it had to be super infinite sure and it's fascinating and I think again, there's a, the the way you put together his life, but also try to work out his motivation. Uh, and as he goes through his life, uh, you know the choices he's making, and the fact that he's uh, he's begging for money for quite very long periods of his time. And obviously, uh, I mean, I think it's an amazing snapshot of the time as well. Which, given it's only sort of four hundred years ago, um, there are some similarities. But it was like life was pretty awful. This, you know, and and through Dunn's life, we see a lot of this, both religious persecution, uh, sort of brutal executions that he witnesses or members of his family are involved with, the plague also obviously hitting as well, which uh, resonates a little bit now. But uh, as you say, I think uh, COVID sort of taken about 3% of the population, whereas the plague was taking 60% of the population, which might have made people wear masks a bit more readily if that was happening here. But also, you know, his the, the lot of his wife, Anne, who was basically constantly pregnant and and died in childbirth, more or less, was it, having given birth to a, a stillborn child at the end. So it's it, it is a it's an incredible um, snapshot of of that time, um, and and of the making of that man. Um, uh, do, do you feel like the the move? I mean, I was always disappointed because I loved the the sort of rakish young man, as certainly as I was a young man myself, uh, and the the humour. I was always sort of slightly disappointed that he sort of turned to religion, but you, you sort of give quite a good uh, argument about why that why that would have happened. Right. So I think there's this, this famous tradition is that there are two John Dunns and he himself invented this tradition. Later in his life, he talks about Jack Dunn, the previous boy that he once was, and Dr. Dunn that he is now. And of course, so my reckoning is it's never that simple. And a huge amount of the kind of questing, invigorating young Dunn is still in the sermons. And a lot of the sort of rebellion, the poetry that he wrote made people very angry. Poetry was taken so much more seriously than it's, it's almost impossible to imagine how seriously poetry was taken, that almost everybody wrote it. And it would be something that could be 
pushed into the service of almost anything. It could be like a thank you note or an invoice or an apology or a seduction or propaganda or a rebellion. And so he was writing at a time when his poetry, by not obeying the laws of poetry that had essentially been established by the ancients, the Greeks and Romans, by not obeying it, Ben Jonson, for instance, said, John for not keep John Donne for not keeping of accent deserves hanging. So there's that, there's the sort of rebellious, wild youth. And then there's the much older, drier John Donne, who becomes, first of all, a cleric, and then the Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, the most important preacher in the entire Renaissance age, and becomes so famous as a preacher that people crush inwards to see him. So thousands, literally two, three thousand people would come to him speak. And the book opens with a description of uh, one of the sermons he was preaching at Lincoln's Inn, where so many people crushed forward to see him that two or three men were taken up and at the time assumed dead. They weren't actually dead, but it was said taken up dead for the while. And as far as we can tell, he didn't stop preaching. He just sort of <laughs> placidly watched these men be taken out. So he became so much an establishment figure from having been such a sort of um, outside figure that it's very easy to see it as there are just these two duns. But my reckoning is really, you can trace him all the way through. You can trace him in that kind of same brutal honesty that you find in the love and the sex poetry, where even in his most ornate seduction, he is acknowledging our decay and our horror. <laughs> you can find it all the way up to the end when in his sermons, he is trying to call people to God, but he is admitting as he does so, just how hard it is. And he preaches this famous sermon where he says, you know, I, I summon God and the angels. And then when God and the angels arrive, I ignore them for the sound of a fly or a straw under my knee. So I think that kind of stark quality of like looking unblinking at the reality of the human heart, I think that lasted. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that I think you do argue that it sort of reminded me a little bit, again, as a comedian, it reminded me of a comedian who's sort of struggling a bit to, to, to do well as a comedian and then suddenly shifts and maybe becomes religious or maybe does something else, but then becomes really successful because he's the funniest bloke who's, who's, a, who's a clergyman and he's the cleverest bloke who's a clergyman, whereas as a poet, he might have been, he might have, have, have not kind of got that recognition. But um, yeah, it, it's it's an incredible life. And, um, and, and I think you're right. I think he is one of the sort of major figures of English literature, though he is overshadowed somewhat. He, he probably by Ben Johnson and Shakespeare, obviously Shakespeare as well. Um, do you think, I mean, because I, I, again, he's, there's so many words he's created, there's so many phrases that have, have gone into into the language as well, out of out of his poetry and his sermons and stuff. Uh, do you think he'll, he, he's, he's starting to get the recognition he deserves? Uh, is that your hope with this book that he will? That is exactly the hope with the book. The hope <laughs> is to sort of uh, reintroduce him to the idea that he is second only to Shakespeare from that period. And that in some ways better than Shakespeare, if you're looking for this very specific sense of um, a kind of eroticism that acknowledges and does not gloss over the kind of charnel house element of the human character. Yeah. Um, and of course he went in and out of fashion in a way that Shakespeare never did. Shakespeare has never not been our great bard, but John Donne disappeared for a couple of hundred years. And then it's famously ascribed to T.S. Eliot, although he was taking a bit too much credit um, for the person who sort of brought him forth again in a great burst of triumph. 
Um, and so one of the reasons I wrote the book was a bid to say to people, reading him now is such a brilliant way to protect yourself against so many of the lies the world is trying to offer you. Like the world wants you to be a very specific kind of sexy and a very specific kind of a kind of money infused wipe clean beauty. And Dunn insists that you are so much more and better and funnier and wilder and stranger than that. And so I think reading his poetry is a kind of bulwark against that. And it, it ranges from, you know, the great, the great loves to just a sort of sense. So for instance, um, his playfulness and his sense of uh, even in uh, seduction, there's room for like a little bit of a tipping the wink to something a bit bawdier. So in the flea, it starts, mark but this flea and mark in this, how little that which thou deniest me is. It sucked me first and now sucks thee, and in this flea our two bloods mingled be. So he's imagining a flea sucking one and then sucking the other. But when it was published after his death, they unreckoned so well with his kind of sensibility that they used the long S to set the text. The long S famously looks exactly like an F. So it sucked me first and now sucks thee was very deliberately offering another slightly more uh, uh, <laughs> explicit rendering yeah. of the same emotion. And things like that, Dunn's desire to have little games and tricks throughout all of his work, both the poetry and the prose. I love him for that, for his sense of our like gamishness. Yes, well, I'm a big fan of the uh, S and F uh, <laughs> switcheroo, <laughs> as in one of my podcasts, as my fans will know. I think uh, as is coming across from this conversation, I think what but what is lovely about this book is just your passion for him and for, for all those themes and how much they've affected you and how, you know, I think it is about sort of this celebration of life in all its forms and imagination in all its forms. Uh, but the the book is so it it's, it it draws you in. I listened to the audio book, which I was interested to see you didn't choose to do yourself. <laughs> is there a reason why you why you got to, uh, Jamie Parker? I believe was who uh, does a very fine reading of it. Uh, um, is it was the why why did you not do your own audio book? Uh, partly, I just don't think I would be very good at it. Um, uh, partly that I wanted John Donne to be read by a man. So okay. I thought a male voice reading, especially as there are some extracts of the poem near the beginning, I thought that, you know, a, a boy who might sound a little bit like John Donne might have sounded would be <laughs> the ideal. Okay. It, well, it's it's a great, it's, you know, it's another, I think sometimes in academic books, it's it's hard to listen to them in, in audio form because you can get a bit lost or, you know, if your mind wanders, <laughs> you can lose track of where you are more so than in a novel. But this one is, you know, I think it, it does really keep your attention and it's, it is, a, you know, it is an academic book, but it's, I think it's very readable for the layman. And I don't think you need to know an awful lot about John, you'll learn about John Donne. Uh, you don't need to know an awful lot about him. And I, I think it will inspire you to, uh, go and read his stuff if you uh, if you haven't read it already it's it's a, a very good celebration of a fantastic man um i was also interested i guess in the the post john dunn's life where people started uh, writing poetry in his style and his head, because the way his, his poetry is collated uh, and we're sort of lucky to have his son i suppose who doesn't sound like a very nice man but <laughs> who's who killed an eight-year-old by hitting them on the head with a riding whip or something wasn't it um but um 
but he got it all and collated it all together. But from all these different versions, there's nothing really, there's one poem in his own hand or something. And also people were then counterfeiting John Donne poetry. Is there any chance that any counterfeit John Donne poems have made it through to be in the John Donne collections? Right, so this, this <laughs> enormous debt that we owe to John Donne Jr., John Donne's least pleasant son, and most of his children, for such a brilliant man, turned out really quite badly. Uh, <laughs> but John Donne Jr. especially, so as you say, uh, not only beat a child to death, accidentally, but still counts. Um, also left a, um, a man's uh, serving woman uh, pregnant and just made off and left her high and dry. So he was not a winning character, but he did two things that we owe enormous debt of gratitude for. One of them was he edited the letters. And the downside was he was so intent on making his dad sound sort of highfalutin and highborn that he changed the people they were addressed to. So they were in fact often to his friends from university and he changed them to be to lords and ladies to make it sound like Dunn was inhabiting a much higher sphere. And the other thing was that he publishes the verse and in so doing creates an amazing marketplace for John Donne poetry. There were so many editions so quickly that we know that people were clamoring for them. And so people started producing really very bad fake <laughs> John Donne poetry and passing it off often as J Dunn spelled D-U-N, but of course spelling in the Renaissance was absolutely haphazard. Yeah. Um, or Dr. Dunn, which could still be like a little bit of plausible deniability. Um, and the thing that I find so interesting about them is they are a brilliant way of finding out what it was that his contemporaries thought John Donne represented. Like what were the hallmarks of John Donne? And the results tend to be like, well, they thought he loved a pun um, so th there's one, it's called um, Dunn's Answer to a Lady, and it goes, the lady speaks first. Say not you love unless you do, for lying will not honour you. Answer of the doctors. Lady I love and love to do and will not love unless be you. You say I lie, I say you lie, choose whether, but if we both lie, let us lie together. <laughs> Um, and clearly they're like, well, he likes puns. He <laughs> likes images of people lying down together, um, but it's very bad. And so it's it's a very easy way in that one to know that's not by John Donne. Yeah. Some of the others, there is at the back of every big Dunn collection, like the dubia, the stuff that may or may not be his. And with that one, I really think you just have to go, you get to pick. You can read yeah. it and you can either say, I think that's done or I think it's not. Because until someone finds something in a trunk somewhere, we just won't know. And they even the ones we've got are sort of collated from various versions, right? So someone's made a decision about what the maybe John Dunn Jr. or whoever has decided this is the final version of the poem, but they will have had to put that together from different versions, right? Exactly that. So some of the poems exist in literally hundreds of versions, all of them roughly contemporary or from the hundred years afterwards, because of the way that poetry spread, because he wasn't publishing it in his lifetime, people would be writing it out on little bits of paper or vellum and giving them to each other, slipping them to a pocket, enclosing them in a letter, sending them off to a friend in York, would send it off to a friend back down in Devon. And so as the poetry spread and as people copied it out into their books and recopied it, enormous numbers of errors creep in. And so sometimes it changes the actual meaning of a poem. Um, sometimes it's just small nouns that shift, like, you know, snorted or slept. Um, and it just means that you can sort of pick your favorite one because some of them have more authority than others, but there's always an element of just educated guesswork. So 
you know, if there's a version you prefer, stick to it and make it yours. Okay, terrific. And uh, fans of my, my other podcast will be delighted to hear that John Dunn essentially saw a ghost. Can you tell us the story of him, <laughs> the, <laughs> him apparently having seen a ghost? So he was away in France on a sort of one of his many unsuccessful attempts to become uh, known at court and promoted, um, acting as essentially a sort of secretary. And his wife was very nearly due to give birth. And he reports having seen walking through the end of his room, a woman uh, sort of dressed all in white, he imagines it, passing through with a baby in her arms. And Walton, his first ever biographer who knew him, reports that at that exact moment, uh, his wife was giving birth to a child who, who died. Um, and that she is herself very near death and that it's this kind of image of her sorrow projected into his room. And then if you actually really drill down into the dates, it's actually about three or four days off. So, <laughs> so the accuracy of it might be slightly suspect, but it is one of those very few moments where you see him showing real depth of feeling towards his children because John Donne, not a great dad. And indeed, <laughs> most of the Renaissance, not like populated with sensational fathering, but him in particular, uh, very, very rarely expressing anything like affection for his children. He, he mostly writes about them when they're distracting or noisy or ill or costing him a lot of money or dead. <laughs> Yes. And, you know, well, you do you do talk about the fact that obviously like infant mortality was huge at the time. And but and he, he lost basically half half of his 12. He had 12 kids and uh, most of them died. A lot of them died very young. But you do make the point that, that that losing your children was still, even though it would happen, was still very affecting. It isn't like people 400 years ago would go, oh, OK, never mind. On to the next one. This was a terrible thing to bear to, to be losing all these these children. Right, exactly that. And I think up until even the 1970s, a lot of people were thinking about the Renaissance this time where because you might have 12 children, uh, if one of them, you know, like popped off, you'd be like, well, you know, we've got others where that one came from. And in fact, we have such good evidence that the grief was as real as any grief and that the loss of a child, like a child you held in your arms, is always going to be something that tears you apart. And maybe the tearing apart looks different and maybe the places you put down your sorrow look different and maybe the ways you explain it in terms of guilt and religion look different. But there is no doubting both his suffering and his wife's suffering at the death of every single child. And I think a lot of the uh, theorizing that used to happen around the way we thought people would treat babies was based on really ridiculous things. Like for instance, the fact that effigies of babies were not included on family tombs led people until about um, the 1780s, led some people, including the great Lawrence Stone, who was a fabulous historian, to conclude that therefore people didn't really care about the death of their babies until 1780, which is just right. manifestly unhinged. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, you know, I just think that you, the overall, just you get the brutality of, and the, the horror of kind of life at that time. And it's sort of, it's, I, I, it, it beggars belief really that it's, relatively so close in time to us now you know 400 years is not that long and, and yet for people with the sort of brutal manner of execution and hand, hang drawn and quartered people and um you know and, and just and Dunn's life which you have you give real I think like 
so she's someone who hasn't really been um, written much about, and obviously there isn't much about her, but you do really draw her, her to life and her awful predicament, really, of just having children until that kills her and always being, and, and just being worn down and exhausted. Um, yeah, 17 years and 12 pregnancies, which means she was either pregnant or recovering from being pregnant for her entire adult life. I mean, even though I think it must have been in many ways majestic and exciting to be married to John Donne, that's just a huge amount of physical burden that she yeah. would have had to carry. Yeah, well, so you, you get that view of the, the life. And then we'll briefly talk about um, whether John Donne, there's sort of misogyny or accusations of misogyny within the poetry and also within some of the, the other things he's written, uh, which again, I think you, you you talk about very fairly and openly and, and don't uh, entirely excuse him of, but how, how about the accusations of misogyny towards John Donne? Um, so there's something that is often said in Dunn scholarship, which is the more of you read of the poetry, the more you love him. And the more you read of the prose, the more it's impossible to bear him. Because a lot of the prose, especially the early prose, the problems and paradoxes, which he probably wrote when he was in his 20s or 30s, are just unbearable. And they have a lot of very explicit misogyny in them. And my stance tends to be, it makes no sense to try John Dunn as a misogynist by modern standards. In the same way, it doesn't make any sense to try him as a bad father, because the standards in the waters that he was swimming in were just so different. But even for the time, Dunn had some images of women that were really very brutally odd and cruel. He, he says, you know, hope not for mind in women, they're but mummy possessed. Mummy being like Egyptian mummy. Um, and then there's also, you know, the famous go and catch a falling star, which is one of the first poems a lot of people come to with John Dunn. You know, it ends and swear nowhere lives a woman true and fair. <laughs> so there's certainly some like, very sweeping anti-women statements made in the poetry. And I think you just have to reckon that's there alongside the poetry that like, hymns a woman's body unlike anyone else. He was both those things, both cruel and witty and funny and loving. He was a, a sort of tempestuous mixture. And, you know, and I think that even, again, I don't want to defend him too much, but I think that that sort of attitude, you everyone's gone through that one way or the other, being being angry with men or angry with women as a result of a relationship with one or whatever, you know, and, and so you can understand, it's sort of, again, there's an honesty in terms of, I think that I would read that as him, as it's as much about his own, you know, horror within himself as anything else. It's about it's about he's been badly treated and he's not coping very well. It's just you know he's he's like one of the Meninists on Twitter, <laughs> feeling, <laughs> feeling, feeling bad that he's been let down on a date and uh, <laughs> and and expressing it. But it's you know it's I, you know I don't I, I I agree that I don't think a lot of it's meant to be literal or that or that some of it is obviously meant to be taken as uh, satire or irony. But it's hard to argue that for for all of it. I have to say. Um, and just uh, in terms of getting a book like this published, how how easy is it to get uh, a publisher interested in something like this? Was this a difficult journey for you or did you did was it relatively easy for you? Um, I think getting it uh, sold was relatively easy because a publisher very kindly approach me but then writing it I, I if anyone out there is thinking about writing a biography about a poet about whom we know very little <laughs> I would like to say don't do it <laughs> it took five years and I rewrote it three times wow. and it was uh gruesome so um 
I the only thing that lasted through writing this book was that I still love him. Okay. I just don't love writing books anymore. <laughs> writing books is is hard though, and obviously <laughs> you you've written very different kinds of books before. So it's I mean obviously you've got as you say like John Donne you have these two lives, <laughs> but uh, but it, 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 are you going to be going are you going to go back to write more more children's books or or is is are you, it sounds like you're not into the idea of writing another bi biography of a poet, at least. Uh, no more poets for a long time, <laughs> I think. I mean, you know, it may be in 10 years, but for now, I'm going to go back to children's books and other writing for adults, but not uh, like careful, loving descriptions of very, very dead men. <laughs> well, fantastic. Look, I, I, I really love this book. Uh, I really recommend it to anyone who's got any interest in uh, history or poetry. But I think I think I think anyone I think even if you don't who don't know who John Donne is, this will really uh, I'll, I'll, I'll prick your interest and get you into, into him. Uh, it's Super Infinite by Catherine Rundle. Uh, thanks so much for speaking to us. It's been lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a delight. Thanks to Chris Evans for uh, putting this all together. <laughs>